So no more Jesus rising into the, uh, this, the, you know, the roof at the Passion Play. Uh, you have seen some of those. Uh, you know, I have to make a comment. Uh, I try not to do this too often, but on the music, particularly the last song. Um, so how many of you grew up in church? Like, okay, okay. So if you've been in church for longer than... 20 years, and depending on what church, but particularly if it's a Baptist church, you grew up and you heard um, uh, all kind. like you heard, you probably sang lots of hymns, uh, which nothing wrong with that, and then all of a sudden comes along like the praise and worship era, right? So then you go from like singing songs with like thick lyrics that communicate deep doctrine to singing I love you Jesus 500 times. And then you saw, like, um, I'm kind of recounting my experience, so you may not share the exact same one. Then you saw this, okay, well, let's take and rewrite hymns. And so then it became, at least, in my, again, in my experience, it became these incredibly hokey redoing versions where we have, like, the flute, you know, and, and, uh, and you're kind of like, so you took this deep, rich theological song, and now you've put, like, uh, happily ever after music to this deep, rich song, and and uh, so, anyways, we just sang "Just as I Am" uh, at 170 beats per minute. Uh, if you're a music person, you know what that is. 173. My bad. The band was 173 beats per minute, and typically that song is done at like seven beats a minute, all nine verses. You know what I'm saying? Um, I was at a church one time that at least every other Sunday night service, that was the invitational song. And, uh, and luckily we did not sing all nine verses every week, but I guess you could rotate verses. Anyways, all right. We digress already and I haven't even started. So, here we are, week nine of the Gospel and Kingdom. Uh, now this series is a little different than our typical mode of preaching uh, as we've talked about before, our typical mode of preaching is, uh, or style of preaching is what we call exposition. So we want to take a passage in Scripture and we want the content and the intent of the passage to determine the content and the intent of the sermon. Uh, so it's not just what does Matt want to say and then finding verses to support it. Uh, that's not good. I don't think that that's even preaching personally. Uh, but I think preaching is speaking God's words in a clear, understandable fashion that's relative and applicational to our lives. And so, this, however, has been a series where we have tried to preach through the entire Bible in nine weeks. And if you were here when we went through Colossians, it took us 14 weeks to go through the book of Colossians. That's a long time. Uh, it took us 16 weeks to go through the book of Ecclesiastes. And and starting next week, we're going to start working through the book of Luke. Uh, and Luke, I'm going to try to get through Luke in about 22, 23 weeks, um, which, is, uh, which is about a chapter a week approximately. Um, so that even that's going to be a little bit of a fast pace. But uh, I, I do have to say this, for all you haters and doubters, right? I said eight or nine weeks, and this is the ninth week. And we are finishing it. So if you didn't think we could make it through the whole Bible in eight or nine weeks, I'm done after today, right? Amen, right? Amen, all right. So, t- 
today, I also have to say this. If you've been after me to preach on Revelation, the book of Revelation, the end times, eschatology, whatever you want to call it, here's your sermon. So enjoy it while it lasts, okay? Because we'll probably not see Revelation for a long time to come, probably until Jesus comes. Because this book is daggone confusing, and, uh, and so I'm going to try and do my best to preach the whole thing in one sermon. Uh, now, as you know, our sermons are longer than most, so anyways, we're going to try to get through Revelation, but here's the, here's the issue, and I don't know why I do this to myself, I should have just taken another week, but we've got to get to Luke. So here's, we have really two big tasks today, okay? The first task is to recap all of Gospel and Kingdom, so eight weeks in like as quick a time as possible. And then the task is to preach the book of Revelation in whatever time's left. So, again, sorry if you're a Revelation fan. Um, you're going to get the leftovers and whatever. I have energy and time left over after we get done. So, Gospel and Kingdom, just to kind of begin with, is the idea of tracing the kingdom throughout Scripture. Uh, someone asked the other day, well, where do you see the idea of kingdom at in the Bible? You see it everywhere. You particularly see it once we get to Jesus. Jesus starts talking about the kingdom. Matter of fact, it's argued that Jesus preached the kingdom and Paul preached the gospel. Uh, and so there's you know, debates on who should we, under, and, and it's really a both and piece. But, but Jesus talks about the kingdom, and then Jesus tells us that he and, and, and the kingdom is now upon you. And, and, and he says that all of the Old Testament is referring to himself and uh, and is speaking of him and prophesying of him. And, and so this idea of the kingdom, just to refresh our minds, is that we are God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we see that theme all throughout Scripture. We're God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now we see at different times where God's people don't want to be God's people. So if they don't want to be God's people, then they're not, live, not living underneath God's rule, and therefore they're not going to live in God's place. Um, but then God does things to redeem or brings about redemption in His people to bring them back to be His people in His place underneath His rule. And ultimately, all of this will finish up where God has His people in His place, and they, with willful hearts, transformed by the work of Jesus Christ, submit to him as their rightful king. And that's where all of this is headed. So, in order to recap gospel and kingdom, um, and and tracing the kingdom throughout scripture, I want to start with an illustration. Uh, I want you to, uh, for fun, pick the zooming optic of your choice, okay? For some of you, this might be a camera zoom. For some of you, this might be binoculars. For some, it might be a telescope. For others, it might be the scope on your rifle. Okay? For me, it's the scope on my rifle. Now, who needs binoculars and that stuff? Scope on the rifle. All right. Now, I want you to choose your favorite thing to look at through those optics. All right? You got, everybody got that in mind? You got the optics in? Okay. Camera zoom, it might be your kids. Binoculars, it might be your neighbors. Uh, telescope, yeah, well, <laughs> telescope, it's probably a particular star or a galaxy or something of that nature. A rifle scope, it might be the biggest buck you've ever seen. That's mine. Now, 
I want you to imagine you're all the way zoomed out, okay? And it's far away. So you can see around that everything that surrounds that particular object that you're looking at. You can see the object, but it's in the distance. You can't really, if it's your kid, you can't make out the face. If it's a buck, you can't count the horns, like, but it's there. You can see it, but you can also see all of the creation around. It's a beautiful picture. You can see the big picture. But what you can't see very well, again, is the main object of that picture, that to which you are trying to focus in on. It's, it's too small. It might even be a little bit blurry. It's there, it's just not as visible, it's not as clearly seen. But then you begin to zoom, right? You begin to zoom in on the picture. And as you do this, all of the peripheral stuff remains in existence, but the main subject is becoming more clearly seen, and that which is in the peripheral is becoming not able to be seen. The picture is zooming in. You're getting closer and closer until finally you see the picture. You see the subject that you were trying to zoom in on. You can make out the wrinkles on its face. You can count the horns on its head. You can see the breath from its mouth. You can see the the now that this big cluster of brightness in the sky is actually millions and millions of little tiny stars. And it's now the only focal point in your picture that you can see is the subject to which you were zooming in to see. And this has been the case with the kingdom of God in Scripture. The gospel and the kingdom was revealed in the garden. And then slowly, as we move through this book, we see that the Bible is zooming us in to that subject to which all of that picture is pointing us to. So we see a picture, we see, we see in Genesis, we see the subject standing there. We just can't make out its face, right? He says that it will bruise his heel and uh, he will bruise his heel, and he will step and smash his head. So we see the subject there. We just can't make out quite who it is. We don't know it's going to be born of a virgin. We don't know that it's going to come from Mary. We don't know the, all those details. We don't know what that looks like. We just know it's going to come from woman's seed. And then the picture progresses, and it gets clearer. And what happens is all of this is culminating into what we will see today and that is the new creation. So God progresses, and the picture is revealed more clearly as we go until we get to Jesus. But that's the subject to which we were zooming in on, and then where is he headed? Where is he taking us? What's going to be consumed as a result of his coming? So with that said, let's begin in the beginning and just kind of walk very quickly through gospel and kingdom from Genesis and, and then we're going to stop right before Revelation and then in Revelation then we're going to kind of expand out the outline a little bit more and go into a little bit more detail and then kind of bring everything back to a close. So in the garden God established the pattern for his kingdom. In the garden God established the pattern for his kingdom. In this pattern, we see that God is the author of creation, that God is the ruler of his kingdom. 
And that man was created to live as God's people in God's place under his rule. This is where man was doing well. Again, you've probably heard me say the phrase that people keep saying, well, we just want to get back to the good old days, okay? Well, this is the good old days. And then after the fall, it's been a succession of very bad days. This is the good old days prior to the fall. This is where man lived willingly as God's people in God's place underneath his rule. Here you see God is taking care of his people, living among them and communing with them in unhindered relationship. We think about relationship. There's many things that can hinder a relationship from communication to other obstacles to, to selfishness. But here we see man and God living in perfect communion, unhindered relationship. And it was created and meant to be this way. That man would be his, God's people and live in God's place under God's rule. It was a beautiful situation. And man will live in this blissful perfection as he submits wholly to the rightful king. I mean, God gives him commands to do, right? To subdue the earth, to exercise dominion, all these things. And, and it tells him not to eat of the tree, which ultimately was a, re, was a command for him to, re, to maintain his dependence upon God. And that in this situation, man would live forever. An unhindered relationship with God. A, a position where man was exercising his, ultimately, his dependence on God. Dependence on God for everything. Life, his breath, his food. Even his decision making in what is right and wrong. Because right? when Adam and Eve eat of the tree, they choose for themselves that from that point forward they will decide what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, instead of exercising dependence upon God. And so we see in the garden, among many things, just, but just a kind of a summary statement, that we were made to live completely dependent on God. Completely dependent on God. Now just a quick comment, that, well, I'll say this, all of our physical, emotional, and spiritual needs were meant to be satisfied by God. Um, now let me step outside for just a moment here and make a comment about the sermon today. I'm assuming over the past eight weeks that you've got Scripture here, and I'm, so I'm going to assume Scripture's in here, okay? So just so that you know, not just pontificating for a few moments, Scripture-less, okay? Um, so, you know, those notes and stuff are online if you want to go jump back and get those, but uh, for right now, just want to make sure you know, I'm not going to reference, as we're overviewing the kingdom, I'm not going to reference all the scriptures, although you should have a good idea of roughly where I'm at in God's word when we're talking about this. So this obviously is Genesis 1 and 2. So we were made to live completely dependent on God. Autonomy from God was not the best path for man, but yet what does man do? He chooses to be independent of God. I want to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. So this kingdom that God had established, this pattern of the kingdom, man chooses instead independence from God and is therefore perished from God's kingdom. So the next step in the kingdom is that he is perished from God's kingdom in choosing his independence. 
The man chose to live independent of God. You know, it's interesting. It seems like a grand idea even today, right? I get to decide what's right and wrong. I mean, what of our friends and even our own sinful selves does not want to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves? We want to do that. Like, this is good for me, and this is not good for me, and I want to choose it myself. The way most of us end up exercising, what, what well, this is what we try to do. We try to live life in such a way that we say, I'm dependent upon God, and I want God to decide for me what is right and wrong. But then when God sends us people in our lives to help us discern what is right or wrong, we happen to ignore them every time. Or when we read it clearly in God's Word, uh, yeah, I don't know. But yet, I want, to, to, I want what God decides is right or wrong, but, but in reality, we don't. And I just want to remind you, belief plus practice is actual belief. Right? Belief plus your actions is actual belief. So you can say you believe that you want God to decide what is right and wrong, but unless you do it, then it's not actually what you believe. It's just a grand thought that you like that makes you feel better. We are made to live dependent on God. Man chooses independence from God and therefore is perished. You know, another comment is that when we, try, when we think it's a grand idea for us to decide what is right and wrong, I think we're making the fatal assumption that we even have the ability to decide ultimately what is right and wrong. That's the key with God, is that God knows the outcome of every situation. He knows the, he, so he both knows the outcome of that decision, but he also, with perfection, analyzes the situation. You and I don't have God's eyes to perfectly analyze any situation that we're in. It's flawed, because we're not perfect, nor do we certainly know all of the outcomes of the situation, or the outcome, I should say. So we don't want this kind of independence. We want this kind of dependence on the God of the universe who can do such things. But instead, man chose to be his own ruler, right? His own king. Man wanted, and this was the word we use, moral legislative autonomy. He wanted to decide what was right and wrong apart from God. And so man was cast from the garden. He was no longer God's person in God's place under God's rule. And sin, we see, spreads quickly. You go back and read Genesis. It doesn't take long before the first murder happens. We're talking generation number two. And murder happens. Like, not he hit his brother and made him cry. Murder happened. Not he lied to his mommy. Like, murder happened. It didn't take long for sin to spread. All the pain, sorrow, and such that we experience today, we have to realize it's because of sin. The physical abnormalities, that's because the result of the fall. Our relational distress is because of the fall. It's because of sin. So the choice of independence from God will always result in death. This is what happens. So Adam, so God says, if you choose to live independent of me, namely by, as displayed by eating of the tree, that you're going to die. That death will come. 
Now we know that he did die spiritually at that point and that he would eventually die physically. But the point is that death comes as a result of us choosing independence from God. It's the same thing that happens today. Even in our daily lives, when we choose uh, to exercise independence of God, we experience the effects of that sin. And if we ultimately choose independence from God, as in, I do not want Jesus as my Savior, then we will ultimately experience death. So any decision leading us away from God always seems like freedom, but indeed is death. It's what we see established here from the very beginning. And I know many people want to argue with this and say, but my freedom apart from God is enjoyable and it's life-giving. Like, I get to do what I want to do. But instead, uh, this is, so my argument against that would be that you're raising the perception your perception of your life into a higher authority than God's Word. Because God's Word says that your experience is the other way around. That in, it is not freedom and life-giving. giving. It is actually bondage and death. When we choose independence of God, it is bondage and death. Your, your interpretation of your experience is not the highest point. God's word interprets our experience. And he says that when we choose independence of him, it's death. This is what happens to Adam. When he chose independence from God, him and his wife experienced death. Same thing for us. So independence will always lead us to death. What we perceive as freedom in life is actually, again, bondage and death. So man is cast from the garden, he's cast from the kingdom. But then, but then, God breaks into man's plight and promises his kingdom will be restored. God breaks in to man's plight and promises his kingdom will be restored. We're talking about the Abrahamic covenant. But in the midst of this fallen world, God declares that he will redeem a people to himself. He will step in and that He will make things right again. At this point, I think we see the promise ultimately is not just to the Jews, but it's to everyone. That He will be a blessing to all the nations. That God will restore all things back to Himself. So that which we once enjoyed, God will bring that back into existence. This is the promise He makes to Abraham. That through your seed, I will bless the world. God's people will come from all corners of the earth. And the place of God will be where the redemption of Christ has taken place. So as God, as Christ redeems, then that becomes the place of God. But while man was still a sinner, God acted in graciousness towards him. You know, it's interesting as I talk to different um, churched people like we try to shy away from like the depravity of ourselves like that we're sinful and can do no good apart from God Um, because it doesn't make us feel good and I want to challenge you that in the midst of us not being able to help ourselves God did and so our feeling good isn't because we're good people it's because God is good and that he has said I want to redeem you. 
to our good, our, our hope is not in that we're good people. Our hope is in that He's a good God. Um, but we don't understand just how good He is often until we understand just how sinful we are. And then we understand the gap or the gulf to which He bridged to redeem us. So, but while man was still a sinner, God acted in graciousness towards him. That sounds quite like a verse in the New Testament, but we see it here in the Old Testament. We see where God and man is wandering hopelessly. Of course, we've skipped like Noah and all of that to go up to the Abrahamic covenant. But he enters in and says, I'm going to do this through you. Abraham did not earn that. That was unmerited favor by God. Abraham did nothing to receive that graciousness from God. He didn't deserve it, but God still did it. I want to remind us at this point that this is not God's plan B. His plan from the very beginning was that Adam and Eve would fall and that this would begin his plan of redemption. His plan was to create a man with the choice to worship. He would then fall and then God bring him, bring about a new creation ultimately through his son, that would have the same human heart, but this heart would be transformed in such a way that it would only desire God. This was his plan. So God, even in our fallen state, acts in mercy and grace towards us. And we see this. We don't have to wait long to see God do this. Matter of fact, we even see glimpses of this. Again, as it's zooming in on the picture, we see glimpses of this in the garden when God kills the first animal and clothes Adam and Eve. I think that's symbolic of eventually what would happen with his son where he would die and his blood then would cover our sins, cover our shame and our guilt and all that. So after God makes us promise, God begins working towards his promises as he displays his kingdom partially but this partial kingdom is only a shadow of the reality to come. So again, it's getting more clear. We saw the pattern, it's perished. Then we see a promise of a new one. And then we see the promises being partially fulfilled. As God begins to carry out His promises of making a people and a place for Himself, we see glimpses of this in the Israelites. I mean, what, what is, I mean, the law, what is, it's God's character reflected in word so that the Israelites can follow and reflect God's character. That's ultimately the purpose of the law, to separate out a people for himself and ultimately to show man, in the biggest sense, his sin and need for the gospel. But the law reflects God's character, and God is beginning to set his people apart. He tells them how to reflect his character. It's during this time that we see an even clearer picture of what the kingdom looks like. There will be a king ruling over a people who submit to that king. And these people will live in joyful abundance in the place that God has prepared for them. So they're in the land of Canaan, and, and they have a king, right? The Davidic kingdom. And David is ruling over This is the time of, of greatness uh, among the Israelites. So even in the midst of the people's disobedience, this is what we see during the partial kingdom, God chooses to exercise His covenant-keeping grace. Because what we see as God is bringing about His promises in the partial kingdom is that the Israelites are still choosing not to be His people. So they'll be His people, and then they're not His people. They'll be His people, and they're not His people. And it keeps going back and forth. But instead of God saying, well, look, forget you all. I'm moving on. Instead, He maintains His commitment to them when He did not have to. 
And so he exercises what we would call his covenant-keeping grace. It is here we see that the people of God will continually act in disobedience, but we will continually see God keep his promise, not because of his people, but actually in spite of his people. They did not deserve this, but God does it anyways. So what we have in this kingdom is kind of the height and the glory of the kingdom in the Old Testament, and then it begins to decline. And in the midst of this declining, as man continues to choose disobedience, God now prophesies about a kingdom that will be realized through the death of another and the transformation of hearts. He prophesies about a kingdom that will be realized through the death of another, of another and transformation of hearts. So if there's anything we see, we see clearly that man cannot obey God's law. It's not possible. His heart is sinful. It has this bend towards sinfulness. As man begins to once again seek independence from God, it shows that what must happen is a transformation from the inside out. Something must happen inside. It shows that man is incapable of living living as God's people by his own strength. Man cannot do this by his own strength. It shows ultimately that man is totally dependent upon God. Right? We're coming back to this. Again, man is dependent upon God. God. Man cannot do this. He needs God for everything. So what happens is God reveals more clearly at this point, the picture is brighter, it's more clear, we're more focused in, that what's going to have to happen in order for the kingdom to be restored is man's going to have to be transformed from the inside out. So what happens is provision will be made, this is what, what is said during this time, provision will be made for a heart transformation within man that will bring about dependence on God once again. And therefore we become holy, the people of God. Your transformed heart, or lack thereof, is indicative of your salvation status. Do we understand that? I mean, it's at this point, I have to, we have to insert and jump in here and go, if my heart has not been transformed, and what we mean by that is, I, uh, oh, I think the Bible means by that is that we desire God over evil. We desire God over ourselves. That, not 100% of the time, right? But that is the position of our heart. That's, that's transformation. That's what God is doing. To, where it's no longer that we just feel guilty about the sin that we do, but we, we realize that the sin that we do reflects poorly on a holy God. We have a result of a transformed heart. Because again, remember, it's not our performance, it's our position. Right? So it's not how well we performed that makes us right with God. It's our position before God that makes us right with Him. So if we have a transformed heart, that's our position before God. Where we've been justified and now we're being sanctified. That's that transformed heart we're talking about here. So, this provision that God's going to provide, this way for man to have a transformed heart, that leads us then all the way up to Jesus. Then finally, with the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is present. Now, to this point, man has been looking for a kingdom spoken in categories that he could understand. 
the idea of the kingdom of God being a person was ludicrous. Like, I mean, that's a crazy idea. I mean, they would not have thought about that, but knowing and seeing what we do now, it's clear that was God's intention. That's what God was pointing to in the Old Testament. He was pointing to this person. This person that would come and fulfill all of His promises. So Jesus' presence begins to explain that He is what the whole Old Testament was pointing to. All of it, all the promise, all the kingdom, all that stuff was pointing ultimately to Jesus. A man would begin the new creation and redeem it all back to the Father. So Jesus would be the firstborn among many. He's the firstborn of the new creation. And then all of redemption would take place through Him. And as we are saved, we become a part of that new creation. So our hope is not found in believing a set of facts, but rather in Jesus, the main character in God's story. So I think we've, we've boiled down the gospel to, as long as you believe these two little, three little things, that uh, now we have our golden ticket to heaven. But the gospel is so much grander than that. It doesn't mean we have to understand all the answers. That's not what I'm saying. But the gospel is much more than that. What is the gospel? The gospel is God created... Man chose to fall, but God in His graciousness has provided a way of redemption. And that redemption will ultimately consume all of the earth. That's the gospel, ultimately. That's the big story of the gospel. So as the people of God, we proclaim the kingdom of God. This is, this is what happens. This, as a result then, now we're in this time period where we are proclaiming the kingdom of God. So God has prophesied about it. Then Jesus came. Now heart transformation is taking place because of the work of Christ on the cross. Heart transformation is taking place. And then as a result of that transformation, we become proclaimers of the kingdom. That doesn't mean we go around, you know, with our bullhorns and the kingdom of God is here, right? Like, now maybe in some places that might be applicable, but you probably, I don't know that that's exactly what Jesus means when he sends us forth with the Great Commission, right? You know, rawr. have you, anybody seen one of those? I've seen one of those. Uh, but instead, I think it looks more like where the gospel has consumed us and that it's beginning to consume everything around us. So when we then are living as God's people, the people around us see us living as God's people, and we speak to them about that. So it's a both a seeing and a speaking thing, where they see us living as God's people, and we share with them how that is. How can we live as God? How can I have a marriage like you have? Well, it's because of the gospel that I have this marriage. It's because both my wife and I want to live as God's people, and so you know, a lot of our decisions become very easy at that point because we both want the same thing. But when one wants this kingdom and one wants this kingdom, it, when we become, as in this book I was reading last night, many kings, many kings, we're never going to get along. But when we are followers of one king, then everything changes. But it's during this time that we proclaim the kingdom of God. 
And then a redeemed person is a proclaiming person. And you say, well, how do you know that? If you just study Scripture and do a theology of the Holy Spirit, you will see the Holy Spirit's role is ultimately to point to Jesus. He points you and I to Jesus as those who are followers of Jesus in a daily, regular basis. But his role is to also point those who are not followers of Jesus to Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. And so, here's the the very easy reason here. If the Holy Spirit is now inside of you, then you will be about pointing people to Jesus. So, gut check. If you're not about pointing people to Jesus, then maybe the Holy Spirit is not in you, has not taken up residence. Or maybe you just need to regain some of that fervor, repent for not, and ask God to to restore that. But a redeemed person is a proclaiming person. We're proclaiming that there is coming a day when the kingdom of God will consume the whole earth. That our king is returning. The kingdom of God, though, and I don't mean to step in and confuse us, but the kingdom of God is already here. It just hasn't consumed everything yet. But the next step is that the kingdom of God will consume everything. Once all of creation is consumed by the kingdom of God, the perfect kingdom will be a reality. Though every promise finds its fulfillment in Christ, and now we see that this fulfillment in Christ will eventually consume all of creation. And this brings us to all of my dear friends, the book of Revelation. All right? Largely spoke of here in the book of Revelation, the perfected kingdom is what we're going to look at now in more detail. The perfected kingdom. So now where we've taken this outline over the past nine weeks and just kind of scrunched it down and did that all in about 20, uh, about 35 minutes. Now we're going to take the remainder of time and we're going to go Revelation and kind of open the book a little bit here. Uh, and... Um, but we're gonna, again, we're going to have to kind of move through this. So the perfected kingdom in more detail. Where is this all headed? The world, I mean, understand this. The world is headed for a conclusion. You guys understand that? Like it's headed for an end. I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way, but it's headed for a conclusion. God fulfilled his promises in the coming of Jesus the first time. He will also fulfill his promise in the coming of Jesus the second time. He will return. He will introduce then the perfected kingdom once Christ returns. He tells about his perfected kingdom in the book of Revelation. So the first thing I want us to look at, just in brief survey of the book of Revelation, is that the Lamb is on the throne. The Lamb is on the throne. And let your life reflect acknowledgement of this fact. The Lamb is on the throne. Let's talk about this. So the book begins with letters from Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor, urging them to stay faithful. This is where the book Genesis, or Genesis, well, Revelation begins. And John receives a vision. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation 4.2. Again, we're just going to survey some of this here. Revelation 4.2 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So consider real quick the context of this, just to kind of paint this picture because we don't have a lot of time. But suffering Christians at the hand of earthly kingdoms now hearing about this throne. 
So at this point, Christians would have been suffering persecution at the hands of an earthly kingdom, of not the kingdom of God here, but a manly kingdom. And so what they do is they hear, John gets this vision, and they hear about the throne of God and how the Lamb sits upon the throne, that the King is on His throne. So whatever little kingdom of God they see on earth, it must be encouraging or was encouraging for them to know that God is still in control and is the one who sits on the throne. It's the same thing for us today. Why do we worry about the government and all that stuff? Like, why? Ultimately, God's still on His throne. I mean, yeah, we need to do things to lead and, 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 and show the kingdom of God and, those, and, and, and vote and all that stuff. But, but I'm saying, ultimately, when things are not looking good in our job, in our kingly, like worldly kingdoms and all this, why do we fret? Our king is still on the throne, and no one's going to take him off of it. He defeated death. He defeated his enemies. Why? We live as though Christ is not on the throne often. So our world is falling apart, you know, and, and my job and whatever. And it's, uh, uh, dude, God, Jesus is still on the throne. We should live that way. It should bring peace and rest, right? We talk about earth like rest in God. Should bring that about when we know that he's still on the throne. So, this is the effect that Revelation 4 would have had to its readers. Whatever it looks like, whatever this world feels like, God is in control. And we can rest knowing God is in control. When we panic, when we worry, we are sinning at this point. We don't like to call that sinning. When we see somebody worrying, when we see someone panicking, we want to go around and give them a big hug and say, Oh, I love you so much, and it's going to be okay. Well, you can do that, but you need to do that and help them realize that in their heart they're sinning because they're not trusting God. I know that's hard. And I'm not saying you walk up to someone who's having a panic and say, dude, repent, you're a sinner. That may not be the best way to do it. Uh, now let's jump in straight to the point. It might be effective with, with your time, but it may not be effective in helping them with their sin, okay? So... So you go up to him, give him a big hug, and say, I love you so much, and, and it's okay, and you can calm down, Jesus is still on the throne, and you know, by the way, I wonder if your heart thinks that someone else is on the throne instead of Jesus. Maybe because you don't have control of the situation, you think that you're on the throne instead of God. So it's okay. Now what we need, sanctification comes upon repentance, comes about after repentance, so maybe we should repent for whatever it is in your heart you're placing trust in instead of God, and ask Him to help you put your trust in Him, and then move forward. So Jesus is on the throne, and John tells us, Revelation 5, 6, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Jesus is the divine king of the universe. His death guarantees that all those who suffer for him on earth will also triumph. We may not understand everything that is going on in this life, but we can know this for sure, that he is in charge. Do you hear me, Christian? Like, there's lots of uncertainty around us. But we can rest because he's in charge. He's in charge of your employer He's in charge of your paycheck. 
He's in charge of your kids. He's in charge of your marriage. He's not just the king of these few things over here or the religious few, right? He's the king of everything. Obama answers to the king. The government answers to the king. Satan answers to the king. We answer to the king. So how do the elders respond in the book of Revelation here? Revelation 5.13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We should follow their example here on earth. Times when it may be inconvenient might cause us hardship, but he is worthy, right? So in the midst of that struggle, he is still worthy of your praise. In the midst of that pain and your world is collapsing on top of you, He is still worthy of your praise. God alone is King. He alone is worthy, even if many do not recognize Him as, his, as their King. So, as we work through Revelation, let me give you a couple <coughs> excuse me, interpretation things here. I think it's best to see the book as describing what will happen in the whole of the last days. Like between the ascension of Christ and the second coming. I think it's good to see the book, generally speaking, as what's going to happen in the whole of the last days. You say, well, what? okay, I need a context for that statement. Um, this is in opposition to believing or seeing that Revelation is symbols that refer exclusively to people or institutions during John's writing. I don't think that that's what's going on here. I don't think that it's exclusively referring. This is also called, known as like the historicist view or something like that. Something weird. But the point is, it's like they believe that John is just, like these are all symbols of things going on of people just during his time period. Or the other is that it's a presentation of chronological events or a presentation of a chronological account of events from the first century to the second coming. That this is chron chronicling uh, the events that will take place. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. Or that it describes only the events at the very end of the age. I think he's talking about, he's painting a picture of what this age is going to look like in general. Like the whole of it. Revelation, here's the deal. Revelation, I don't think, is written to give us a time chart. Okay? I know that was really popular back in like the 70s and 80s. You, know, you got the big charts and all that stuff. I don't think that was the point. I mean, seriously, there's a number of sequences arranged in, like, parallel that's going on here. So how do you explain that? Uh, so, anyways, moving forward. Let me give you an example. The four horsemen. The four horsemen represent imperialistic aggression, bloodshed, economic instability, and death that will mark the age, or mark every age until Christ returns. So I think the four horsemen come at one little period in time. No, I think they're present from then until the return of Christ. So this aggression, this, this instability and death, I mean, that has marked every age, right? We see that. So I don't think that that's a, an event piece there. Uh, we will have to hold firmly to the vision of the throne if we're going to pers persevere through all of that. And I think that's... Revelation is giving us this picture of what this time is going to look like. 
Now, whether pre-mill, post-mill, all that stuff, we're not getting into that today, okay? Um, Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever trib you are, uh, we're going we're gonna to keep it a little more on the surface than that today. But the point is, is this time period's not going to be easy. And we have to depend upon the throne of God to make it through it. So, the next thing we see in the book of Revelation is that this world will pass away. This world will pass away. God cannot introduce the new creation He has promised until all that spoils the old one has been removed. All that spoils the old one must be removed. So we see the fall of Babylon. That's, we're going to move through this pretty quickly. A woman is introduced in Revelation 17. If you look at 17 verse 5, And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Wow, what a title to be written on your forehead. Alright, so let's talk about this for just real quickly. We've seen Babylon, right? It was the location of the Tower of Babel. A symbol, what was the Tower of Babel? It was a symbol of human arrogance and pride. We see this in Genesis 11. I think it seems natural then for John to give the name Babylon to this woman. She represents non-Christian society organized without reference to God. And we see this all around us, the world, right? She's called a prostitute because, Revelation 17, 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So the adultery is spiritual, the adultery is spiritual rather than sexual. She, she, she seduces many to live for her rather than the true God. This is what's going on during all of this age, post-Christ. But Christians must resist her. I mean, think about it. We, we are a people in exile right now. Do we know that? We are a people in exile. This is going on around us. The world does not want to be gods. We want to be gods. So right now, it's as if we're in the middle of Egypt, right? And we're saved. We're God's people. The kingdom is coming about. And then one day, God will bring us out of that one final time. The fall will take place. But this time, it's the fall of the world's heightened arrogance and pride. This Babylon will fall. So we see that in Revelation 18, verse 21. It says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. This is a comprehensive and final judgment that will take place. The proud city of human society that we see around us, established in stubborn independence from God, will collapse in an instant. The beast, the false prophet, Satan, all judged alongside Babylon. They're all thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. And then human beings also must stand before God in judgment as well. And then we see all those whose names are not written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire as well. This represents eternal death, separation from God. If you don't believe in a literal hell, I mean, the rest of the Bible doesn't make any sense. Like, you really should just close the book and walk away. 
Because if you don't think that there's the Bible speaking of a literal hell, then your hermeneutics and how you interpret Scripture is just whack. Like, then you should be denying a whole lot of other things in God's Word. It doesn't make any sense, ultimately. If all those refuse to acknowledge God's rule must be excluded from this. They will be separated from God ultimately. And God has determined that nothing will be allowed to destroy His perfect kingdom. And this is what's coming. Justice is done, and the evil is destroyed. Not almost you, but like, that gets my heart a little excited, right? Like, not that, that people will experience eternal punishment from God. That's a different thing. But I'm saying the fact that evil will be judged. You know, you know what that means practically? It means that I don't have to seek my own retribution. I don't have to seek revenge. I don't have to worry about whether or not justice is carried out. Now, I'm still going to be a fan of our justice system and those kind of pieces, but, but I ultimately don't have, I'm not finding my hope and satisfaction that that murderer is brought to justice because ultimately he will be brought to justice. A justice will be served. And then our prayer, because we've experienced the graciousness of God and we realize just how evil we are, then we begin to pray that God would exercise grace and mercy on that murderer and bring him to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and transform his heart. That's not a, let's just pray that God just kills them all. Like, that's not what the point is. Because we deserved that judgment as well. But God acted in graciousness towards us. So we should live knowing that the imperfection of this world is a result of the fall. So all this Babylon talk and the, the world is evil, like we should live knowing that the imperfection of this world is a result of the fall. It's because sin entered into this world. Next, we should live knowing that the evil in this world will ultimately be destroyed. Hallelujah, right? Like, it will ultimately be gone. And if we understand just how much evil pervades our life, and inv- I'm sorry, invades our life and is just prevalent all around us, we will know just how awesome of a day it will be when that is all gone. Our hope is in Him, the one who's going to bring about the ceasing of all of this evil. Does it bring you hope knowing that He is on His way? Does it? So, the old must pass, and the next, the new world is on its way. The new world is on its way. As we look at this new creation, we have to understand that as the Old Testament has prophesied of these things, it was done so in categories that the people understood. It was kind of like the whole, uh, I'm promising my kid a horse, but this was before the invention of the automobile. Some of you remember that. So the automobile comes, and so instead of buying my son a horse, I buy him an automobile. It's because I promised him a means of transportation in a category that he understood. Neither of us understood the fact that an automobile was coming one day. So if I bought my son a horse when the automobile is here, I, I'm like cheating my son. I'm not, not fulfilling my promise by not buying him a horse, by buying him an automobile instead. But now that there's a different category, I'm going to fulfill that promise in a different category that we understand now. It's the same thing with God. God revealed his kingdom in categories that the people understood. And now his kingdom is ultimately going to be revealed in a category that we will understand. So what I'm saying to that is, Looking for something physical 
like a physical temple. I think we're going to see in Revelation. I don't think that it's a it's physical temple in, in the category in which we think of. If you've seen, been to Israel, you think of Dome of the Rock and, and, and the site of Holy of Holies. and, 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 and these. I, hold on to that thought for just a few moments. Okay, Let, Let's move forward with this. So now that Babylon has been destroyed, God is able to create the new world, the promise that he promised through the prophets. There will be, first of all, a new creation. We're talking about the perfected kingdom now. There will be a new creation. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So God is establishing a completely new creation, a new earth, a new universe. So, I mean, we think of the fall, we typically think of the fall as affecting only the human hearts, but it didn't. It affected everything. It affected all of creation. So just as salvation came to redeem human hearts, it also is to redeem all of creation. No earthquakes, volcano eruptions. If you, go read Revelation. It talks about the lamb sleeping with the lion. Like, whoa, it's a crazy idea. Revelation 21, verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Anybody looking forward to that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. And I enjoy this life. Like, this is good. But I'm looking forward to that. There will also be a new Jerusalem. Revelation 20, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What is he talking about? This is not, I don't think this is a new vision. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't think this is a new vision. I think it explains the vision of the new creation that, God, that John has just seen. Von Roberts, I like what he says. He says, God's new community will be multiracial, multicultural society, uniting black and white, male and female, Serb and Cro Arab and Jew. It will unite them all in one city that drops out of the sky prepared for her groom, Jesus. So heaven here is described as a city. Many of us, see here's the many of us imagine perfection, like the place of existence, as some idyllic spot on the countryside, miles from anyone else. Anyone else, like, that's the ideal place? It's kind of mine, like, like a farm out in the country, you know, where my next neighbor can't even be seen. Like, that's my kind of place. The Bible says that's not going to be the place in which we finally dwell. So I had to repent of my desire for something that is not where we're headed. But, uh, God's great goal for us, hear me, is that we shall no longer be isolated from one another. That's what we want. That's what happens in the garden. That's why the shame and nakedness that happened. They wanted to be isolated from each other now that they see the shame that's taking place. That is now present, I should say. Instead, we shall be in perfect community, united with Christ. We will live in one big city. If you don't like that idea, then you might as well get off the train now, because it ain't making a pit stop somewhere else. We're headed towards a big city. It talks about believers from all ages and countries will be there. It talks about 144,000 in number. 
144,000. What is that number? I, I think that that number, you know, this is, up, this is arguable, uh, debatable. I think that number stands, the figure stands for the totality of God's people. The fact that none will be missing. That all of God's people were there. Because then John tells us in 7-9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. There, must have been more, there were more people than could be counted. There were representatives from every tribe, nation, people, and language. I mean, think about this. So God judged mankind at the tower, right? And, and spread them out from languages, saying, I will thwart man's plans. And he, he, he confuses their languages. And what's he doing now? He's bringing them all back into one city, to one people. Next, there will be a new temple. There will be a new temple. Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So in the old days, God lived with his people in the temple in Jerusalem. After the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, God prophesied through Ezekiel that he would build a new temple. And then we see Christ refer to himself as the temple that will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And they say it took 60-some years to rebuild the temple. How is it going to be rebuilt in three days? And he, Jesus says, no, 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 it's me. I'm the residing place of God. And as Christian believers, we know that his presence is with us by the Holy Spirit. The church is God's temple on earth, not Jim Quest, the building, but the people of God. For God's presence dwells among us. And it's striking, I want to point something out, and I encourage you to go back and look at this later. It's striking that the city John sees is a perfect cube. Just like the Holy of Holies in the temple, where God's presence was focused. It was a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies was a small area, and only one man, the high priest, was able to enter. But now the whole city... I believe he is communicating here as the Holy of Holies. It is 15,000 miles square. No cube, I guess, technically. It is interesting that this is, was as large, if you just look historically, that this was probably as large as the known world was at that time when John writes this. I think God is speaking, again, in categories that John understood. And what he was telling John was that in the, whole, in, the, in the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was the place where God's presence was focused. But now in the new creation, there will be no place that God's presence will not be. Think about that. That there is not the Holy of Holies, and that's where God is, and then we all get to watch from afar. But instead... No matter where we go, God's presence will be there. I think that's what he's telling John. The whole place is a temple. I think that's why John says, Revelation 21, 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Amen. 
Think about that. So again, I think to look for a physical temple is to look for a shadow when the reality is Jesus and the reality is the Lamb and the Lord God Almighty. There will be no distance between us and God anymore. We shall know Him perfectly. So the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, God's people will consist of all those from every nation who trust in Christ for all time from all nations. They will be united in God's place, the new creation and new Jerusalem, which is in the new temple. And they will submit to God's rule and therefore know his perfect blessing. This is where we're headed. So the throne of God and the Lamb is at the center. And if you go back and read, it says that from, the God, from God and the Lamb that there flows a river bringing life and prosperity to everyone. He's referring back to the garden. That there, there is this flowing river that will bring everything that we need. And it all here in John says, in Revelation says, it comes from the God Almighty and the throne. But here's the deal, all this is to come. So the New Testament ends just like the Old Testament ended. Looking forward, waiting for the final fulfillment. And this is what we're a part of. Jesus reassures his people, and let me reassure you with this as well. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So in conclusion, a few thoughts. What we should know and do in light of the gospel and kingdom. One, we should know God's big story reveals His holiness, justice, grace, and mercy. And we should live to see God's character revealed through you and everyone around you. Live to see God's character revealed through you and everyone around you. Second thing that we should know, know that you were created to live wholly dependent on God. Live in dependence on God, the only one who can fulfill all that you need. Let me warn you, church, this is a daily struggle. And if you don't realize it as such, you are blinded. We try to find satisfaction and joy independent of God every day. And we were created to fail at that every time. But to succeed at finding fulfillment and joy in God every time. Live in dependence on God, the only one. Thirdly, know that God is redeeming all of creation through the work of the gospel. All of it. Not just you. Not just this church. Not just this country. God is working to bring about redemption among all of His creation. So live to see God redeem your marriage, your workplace, your parenting, and the rest of creation. As we proclaim the kingdom, we should see redemption take place around us, in our marriages, in our spouses. Like when you engage your spouse, is your desire to see them live out the gospel more clearly, or is it to make your life more happiness? What is it? 
You bring about your parenting. Are you more concerned about your reputation by the way your kids act? Or are you more concerned about their holiness and how they reflect God's character? Like, let's be about the throne of God and, 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 and seeing that become a reality around us. Well, we are God's people living in God's place. And, and as we do this, let's remember that Christ is on the throne, right? He's in charge. So if we're going about this task, it's not by our own strength. We get to be a part of what God is doing. And I hope that through this series that your picture of God has just been magnified, that you have this grand picture, this beautiful story of who our God is and what He has done and what He's going to do in the future. And that you live knowing that. Know that God's in control. Know that this is not plan B for Him. This is plan A. The only plan He ever had in mind. And that it will happen to perfection in His timing. We should live with confidence. We should live with hope. Live with joy. Knowing these things. God is good. And the things that He's doing will be for our good. Whatever they are. Whatever they are. So let's live knowing that. Our King is bringing about His kingdom that we will be a part of for all eternity. I want to pray for us. We're going to sing one last song. As we sing the song, In Your City, uh, I want you to reflect as we're looking at these words, we're singing the song, I want you to reflect on them in light of what we've learned over the past nine weeks. And then after that, we'll uh, be dismissed. So let's pray, and the band will come, and we'll sing, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your kingdom, showing us who you are. And Father, I know it's hard as we see man's kingdom all around us, it's hard sometimes to see that your kingdom is shining through. We tend to live with despair and discouragement at all the sin and sorrow and pain and evil around us. But Father, when we live, we are placing our trust in something else. But Father, if we place our trust in you and our, and our hope in you, we know that you're on the throne. And that, Father, one day you're going to return to take us to this perfect city where we will no longer have to search to find you, that there will be no longer anything that clouds our vision or experience of you, but yet you will be there everywhere we go, just as you are now, but without all the distractions and obstacles and flesh and sin and all those things. Everywhere we go, you will be there, and there will be no distractions. Father, as we sing about your city, I just pray that uh, we would sing these truths in light of our better understanding that we have gained from studying your word over the past nine weeks. And Father, we love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with me, and uh, let's worship together.